Go ahead. Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. If I were to ask you today, what is God-like, how would you respond? What is God-like? I think there are a lot of people who think of God as being a tyrant, that he wakes up every morning trying to figure out how to make our lives miserable. There are others who think of God as being a doting grandfather. And no matter what we do, God thinks it's cute. What is God like? As I was pondering that question recently, I decided, well, why don't you ask Siri? She's never able to answer any other of my questions, so I took out my smartphone and I asked Siri, what is God like? And she replied, it's all a mystery to me. I think maybe that's the reason there are so many different names used to refer to God because each one of them speaks of a particular characteristic of God. For instance, he is called Jehovah or Yahweh, which speaks of the fact that he is eternally existent. You remember when God said to Moses, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses replied, well, God, why should Pharaoh listen to me? Who am I that he should pay any attention to what I request? And who should I say has sent me? And God said, I am has sent you. Not I was God, a God of the past, not I will be God, God of the future, but I am speaking of the fact that God is eternal. So he is called Yahweh or Jehovah. He is referred to as Elohim, which speaks of the fact that he is the creator, that God spoke this world into existence. He is the creator. One of my favorite names for God is El Shaddai, which means strong-breasted or God Almighty. And it refers to the fact that God is sufficient. Aren't you glad that our God is sufficient? That he is sufficient for every need you have, every situation you face. He is El Shaddai, all-sufficient. The name that is most familiar to most of us and that is dearest to us is the name that was made popular by Jesus when he referred to God as Father. There is no recorded prayer prayed by Jesus in which he does not call him Father. There is no recorded sermon preached by Jesus in which he does not refer to him as Father. His first recorded words, know ye not that I must be about my Father's business, his last recorded words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Today we conclude our three-part series from the parable of the prodigal. We have looked at the prodigal, we looked at the elder brother, and today we conclude by looking at the father. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse number 20. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. Today I want us to see God as a father and there are three characteristics in this parable concerning the father. First of all, we see the father's restraint. I think probably the most difficult thing for a parent to do concerning their children is to restrain themselves, especially when their child is doing something with which they do not agree or with which you believe to be detrimental to that child. When I look at the prodigal, I see someone who had a rebellious spirit. He demanded his inheritance. In verse number 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Robert Higgins wrote, In the Jewish culture, this was a radical rejection of the father. In essence, he was wishing for his father to be dead. You see, an inheritance normally is not passed on until the benefactor has died. So when the boy came to his father and said, I want my inheritance and I want it now, he was in effect wishing the death of his father. There is some insight as we look at the words in verse number 12 when he said, Father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. The word estate that is used there means more than property. It is a philosophical word used to talk about one's substance or one's being. So the son was saying, give me the peace of your being that belongs to me. Father, give me the peace of your being that belongs to me, the estate. Then the Bible says that the father divided his wealth between them, a different word. In fact, the word wealth is used three ways. A vine says it means the period or duration of life, the manner of life, life in regard to its moral conduct, the means of life, livelihood. So what happened there? As the son came to his father and he said, Father, give me the peace of your essence that belongs to me. And the father gave him everything. He asked for his portion, but the father gave all of it to him. So the son received his inheritance and left for the distant country, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country. So he took what the father gave to him, he took his inheritance, and he left for the distant country. It was deliberate. He had planned it. He planned for the departure. He planned to go to the distant country. It was progressive. He went a little bit at a time, and the father allowed him the means to go. The boy was rebellious, He determined to go to the distant country and the father provided him the means 
to go. God restrains himself and allows us to make our decisions even when they are not in our benefit. Why does he do that? I think that most people would interpret that to mean that God doesn't care or God is powerless to do anything about it. Why does God allow you to make decisions that are not in your best interest and do not bring glory to God? Well, it might be because he is impotent, he can't do anything about it, or it might be because he doesn't care. But if I look at the Bible, the reason God does it, the reason God allows you to make decisions with which he does not agree is because God made man free. In his sovereignty, he made man free. The Bible tells the story of the Garden of Eden. God gave man everything that he needed for life. And in the midst of that garden, he placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he do that? I mean, man had everything that he could possibly need. There he placed one tree and said to man, don't eat of that tree or you will die. Why did he do that? Because by placing the tree in the garden, it gave man freedom. Now man can choose to be obedient to God or he can choose to be disobedient of God. You see, God allows us the freedom to choose even when it's not in our best interest and when it's not to his glory. Folks, God allows you to choose the quality of your life. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 26 to 28 say, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. Do you see that? God said you can choose the quality of your life. I'm putting before you a blessing and a curse. There is a blessing if you obey me. There is a curse if you disobey me. But he said, I allow you to choose the quality of your life. The Bible says that he allows us to choose our master. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse number 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So Elijah then said to the people, if you believe that God is God, then you should follow him. I would say the same thing to you and to me. If you believe the Lord is God, follow him. On the other hand, if you believe that Baal is God, it makes sense then to follow him. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15, Joshua wrote, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, he said, Choose who your master is going to be. And that's what we see in this passage of scripture. The prodigal chose the citizen of the distant country rather than his father because the father allows the choice. 
We choose the quality of our lives. We choose the master of our life. And we choose our destiny. I hear people oftentimes say, I don't think that a good, loving God would send anyone to hell. I agree with you. God does not send anyone to hell. He lets us choose. We choose our destiny. The scripture says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, that is the desire of God. It is God's desire that you go to heaven. But the Bible says that you make that choice as to whether or not you spend eternity in heaven or in hell. So as I look at this passage of Scripture, the first thing I see is the father's restraint, a father who restrained himself and allowed his son to make the decision. Second thing I see is the father's sorrow. I think you would probably agree with me that it is impossible to be a parent without at times having a broken heart. And the sorrows of God are the sorrows of any parent. There's the sorrow of estrangement. Now there is a natural estrangement. From the time our children are born, we begin preparing them for the time when they leave home, for the time when they go on their own, they become independent, they live their own lives. We begin preparing them for that. But parents, is there not a sorrow that goes with that even though it is natural? I remember when my children went to college, left home for the first time. I was happy because we had planned in that direction. I wanted them to go to college. But there was the sorrow that went with it. I mean, when Eric was gone, I didn't have anybody to watch sports with anymore. Linda doesn't watch sports. So there's a sorrow that goes with it. Hank is in, uh, in London this semester studying. He'll be back in May. Now, there is a happiness that goes with this. But at the same time, there is a sorrow because you miss him. When our children get married, we, there is, a, there is a, a joy that goes with it. But at the same time, there is a sorrow that comes with it. So there is a natural estrangement, but there's a sorrow. There were three pastors who'd gone fishing. They got to discussing when life begins, and one of them was a Catholic. They said, when, when do you think life begins? He said, well, we believe that life begins at conception. At the moment of conception, we believe life begins. The Methodist was asked, when do you people believe that life begins? And he said, well, we believe that life begins somewhere in that first trimester. That's where we believe. And then they turned to the Baptist and said, when do you people believe life begins? And the Baptist pastor said, well, when the kids move out and the dog dies, we believe that's when life begins. There is a natural estrangement, but even though it is natural, even though it is anticipated, even though it is prepared for, there is nevertheless a sorrow that goes with it, but it is the needless and rebellious estrangement that brings grief to the heart. There was no reason for the prodigal to leave. Why did he leave his father? There was no reason for him to leave. And just like him, some of us needlessly estrange ourselves from God. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do you do that? 
we needlessly estrange ourselves from God. Why? Well, sometimes because we become impatient. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. The boy was impatient. He wanted his inheritance now. I was reading in my devotional time yesterday. Interestingly, I read in Proverbs chapter 20, verse number 21. And it says, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Sometimes we simply don't want to wait on God, do we? We become impatient. When it comes to marriage, I'm ready to get married. Someone walks by who's available, well, that'll do. Now, later we wish that we would have waited, but we don't want to wait on God. Whenever we are choosing our career, well, I think I'll do this. And we don't seek the Lord. Some of you students are planning to go to college. Let me ask you a question. Are you praying about it? Are you seeking God in it? God, where do you want me to go? Where is it that you have planned for me? But see, we, we become impatient sometimes and don't want to wait on the Lord. And therefore, we estrange ourselves from him. Another reason is because of a desire for independence, and that, I believe, was this boy. He was not only impatient, but he wanted to be independent. He wanted to be independent from the influence and the authority of his father, so that, I think, was the result of it. And oftentimes, we suffer great heartache because we become impatient and don't seek the Lord because we want to order our lives apart from God and we suffer the consequences of it. There's a sorrow of estrangement. There's a sorrow of impoverishment. Every earthly parent desires that their children are blessed. Every earthly parent wants their children to do well. In 3 John verse 4, John wrote, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Every parent wants their children to do well. And so does the Heavenly Father. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Every parent wants their children to do well. And when they needlessly impoverish themselves, it brings sorrow to the heart of the father. That's what happened with this boy. Look, look at verse number 12 with me. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. That was his request. Look at verse number 29. He answered and said to his father, this is the elder brother, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. I've served you, father, and you've never given anything to me. But look at verse number 31. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine. See, here is the elder brother who is upset because 
He said, you've never given a kid to me. Here is the younger son, the prodigal, who said, uh, I want the share of the estate that belongs to me. And the father is saying, everything I have belongs to you. The other night, they kicked off this semester of real, our men's ministry. I went to it. Joey showed a, Kevin showed a video of the, of the settlers. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a direct TV commercial. And uh, it's about, you know, we're settlers. We settle for whatever. As I've watched that, and I like that commercial, because here's the question that is in my mind, the thing that bothers me sometimes. I wonder what I am settling for. And one day I'm going to stand before God and he said to me, Wendell, there was so much I wanted to do in your life, but you settle for so little. See, that, that's these two boys. One of them wanted the portion of the estate that belonged to him. The other one said, you never gave a party for me. And the father is saying to both of them, everything I have is yours. I wonder someday if I will stand before the Lord and him say, I wanted to do so much, but you were content with so little. And then there's a sorrow of defilement because every parent wants their child to be pure. You know, sometimes we maybe out and see a drunk staggering down the street and we laugh about it. But it wouldn't be funny if it were my son or if it were yours. Sometimes we see a prostitute standing on the street and we may make some cute remark, laugh about it, but it wouldn't be funny if it were my daughter or yours. See, the fact is when our children are defiled by sin, we are grieved. A parent is grieved, and the father is grieved. So there's the father's sorrow. But then thirdly, there is the father's forgiveness, and there is no forgiveness like that of the father. I, I looked up the word prodigal in the dictionary, and it defines prodigal as recklessly extravagant. That's what the word means. Recklessly extravagant. Now, the prodigal in the story, the younger son, was recklessly extravagant in the waste of his wealth. His father gave him the inheritance and he wasted his wealth. God the Father is recklessly extravagant in his love for you. When I look at the prodigal, I see that he wasted his wealth. When I look at God the Father, I see that he is extravagant in his love for us. But in order for us to be restored to the Father once we have gone, then there has to be repentance. What does that mean? We use the word. There are a lot of church words that we use. We use repent. What does the word repent mean? It means a change of mind that produces a change of direction. To repent means that I'm going one way and I turn around and I go a different way. It means that there is a change of mind that produces a change of direction. Now you see that with David when it was pointed out that David had sinned 
In Psalm chapter 51, he confesses his sin. He asks for forgiveness of his sin and says, God, I want to serve you. Forgive me that I might serve you. So it means to turn. And then it means to restore. Pent, repent. Pent means the highest place. There's a penthouse, the highest place. So when the Bible says that we are to repent, it means that we are restored to the highest place. So what does it mean to repent? It means that I turn around so that I can be restored to the highest place. And here we see repentance, what it is described because this boy goes from confusion to clarity in verse number 17, but when he came to his senses. Rebellion leads to confusion. Repentance leads to clarity. It allows us to see clearly. Folks, when we are rebelling against God, we are confused. Everything is cloudy. But when we repent, then things are clear. He went from denial to truth, verse number 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? You see, when we repent, we face the truth. We deceive ourselves up until we repent. When we repent of sin, when we deal with sin, then we face the truth. He went from rebellion to confession, verse 18. I'll get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Repentance then is to stop rebelling and confess sin. And so he said, I'll rise up and go to my father and I'll confess my sin. Father, I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he went from the distant country home. Folks, sin leads us away from home. Repentance leads us back. When we allow sin in our life, it leads us away from God. When we repent, it leads us back. And then there is forgiveness. When we repent, God forgives. He gives a new heart, verse number 32. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This brother of yours was dead, now he is alive. That's what Paul said. If a man is in Christ, he is a, he's a new creature, he's a new creation. See, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But when we repent and come to the Father, the Bible says that he gives us life. There's a fresh start, verse number 20. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. That says to me that all sins are forgivable and new life is available. When we come to the father, repenting of our sin, no matter what our sin is, all sin except rejection is forgivable. And new life is available. Let me conclude. As I look at the father in this story, I see a father's restraint. 
The Father restrains himself and he allows you to choose the quality of your life, the master of your life. He allows you to choose your eternal destiny. I see the Father's sorrow because every parent suffers a broken heart when a child is needlessly rebellious. And then I see the Father's forgiveness when there is repentance. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. My friend, you may be in the distant country today, but the good news is that the Father loves you. He is waiting to receive you, to forgive you, and to restore you to the highest place if you're willing to come to Him. Our gracious Father, we come to extend an invitation in Your name. And I pray, Lord, for those who have never come to know Christ, that today they might. I pray, Lord, for those who have gone to the distant country and today you're calling them. I ask that the Holy Spirit call people back to you, some for the first time to be saved. I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. If you're here, you've never trusted Christ. I pray today that you might. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. We'd love to have you at First Baptist. Stand with me, please, as we stand. They sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.